Hello, I'm Lucy Mercer. And I'm Livia Franchini. Welcome to the Too Little Too Hard podcast, where we talk to writers about the intersections of work, time and value in relation to their creative practice and literature as a whole. We're delighted to have Emily Berry and Will Harris as guests on the podcast today to talk about their amazing writing featured in the publication, as well as wider thoughts related to how writing intersects with questions of work, time and value. Emily Berry is a poet, writer and editor living in London. She's the author of three books of poems published by Faber and Faber, Dear Boy, 2013, Stranger Baby, 2017 and Unexhausted Time. 2022. Her lyric essay in the secret country of her mind on dreams, agoraphobia and the imagination appears in the limited edition artist book Many Nights by Jackie Kenny. She is editor-in-chief at the bedtime story app Sleep World. Will Harris is a London-based writer. He's the author of the poetry books Rendang 2020 and Brother Poem 2023, both published by Granta in the UK and by Wesleyan University Press in the US. He has been shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize and won the Forward Prize for Best First Collection. He helps facilitate the Southbank New Poets Collective with Vanessa Kizuli and co-translated Habib Tengel's Consolatio with Delena Haslam in 2022. He currently works in extra care homes and is a visiting poetry fellow at UEA working towards a community-led archive of poets' work. Thanks so much to both of you for coming on the podcast. We thought we might start by talking to you, Emily, about your amazing essay, Further Injury, Surviving Poetry, which takes as its starting premise the question, what does it mean when people say poetry saved their life? You note for you and many other poets, poetry emerges from difficult and traumatic experiences and troubling emotions are troubled into being. These intolerable experiences that bloom into poems have to be somehow tidied and made marketable by external value systems, such as prizes and publishing, systems that seem to have no capacity to recognise poems' complexity and ambivalence beyond a marketable value that is extractive and simplistic, whereas, as you say, of this strange relationship, that whatever value a poem has is inextricable from the injury that caused it. Could you talk a little about the essay and also perhaps a bit about the popular and often made claims as to the healing, therapeutic and curative powers of poetry, not to say, as I think is evident, that poems aren't cathartic in some way, a tangled and complex relation as the essay so beautifully articulates. Yeah, oh, thanks for having me. And for the commission to write the piece, which was interesting for me to think about. And the whole publication is just such a great and timely thing. Yeah, I suppose the starting point was, in a sense, thinking about that question of the catharsis of poetry and its sort of consolatory potential. I don't really address the idea of that as a reader, although maybe it's implied to an extent. But I'm thinking about it more from the perspective of the writer. And it did literally start from the point at which the essay starts, which was noticing over a period of time that some people would comment on their social media, other writers and poets specifically about feeling that their writing had in some way saved their life. 
And I was just kind of interested to interrogate that a bit. I think largely because it was something that I felt a bit alienated from and was kind of like, oh, why has my poetry not saved my life? In that way that social media is just an envy machine, isn't it? So you just see people saying things and you wish that you were feeling like that or had that thing or whatever. And then I started thinking about how I do feel about the writing of poetry and that I have often felt strangely that I might be better off if I wasn't a poet emotionally. And you can't really untangle that because obviously you don't really know what you would be like if you weren't a poet. And then, yeah, I suppose it just sort of came down to feeling like without wanting to be precious about it, that it's something that one has to do for whatever reason and it has positive and negative outcomes. So yeah, that's some of the background to the essay. I think it's such a complex thing because it, we're all looking for things to make us feel better and maybe we don't actually really know what the things that make us feel better are. In the end, you might be doing some certain things and it actually turns out that it's something else that's made you feel better. I wonder if the kind of idea of curing symptoms and almost the sense of taking things away is antithetical to poetry when we're talking about the idea that a poem could restore you somehow. Maybe it's based on that kind of medical model of medicine. There's this idea, if you're talking about kind of mental health, that in order to get through something difficult or heal from something that you need to face it head on in some way, which I guess I'm a bit ambivalent about, but broadly agree with. I really love that James Baldwin quote where he's talking about racial injustice, but obviously you can apply it to other contexts. Something like, not everything can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. But obviously facing things can be extremely painful. And poetry, if you're writing about something personal, which of course you may not be, requires looking at something head on or looking at it from some angle or other that means that you can't possibly avoid its kind of horrifying nature. In that sense, it doesn't feel necessarily very cathartic at the time it's being created, but perhaps later on it may. I suppose in that sense, it's maybe a bit like psychoanalysis because it's also that kind of more holistic idea of healing that may not be necessarily comfortable that is still very different to I guess what we would call though I don't like this term mainstream medicine or mm. leaving symptoms without addressing causes perhaps. I'm just going to go back to your question is the idea of poetry as cathartic connected to that sort of simplistic idea of removing symptoms and maybe you could see it like that if you don't go into the complexities of it oh I'm just going to read a poem now to make myself feel better but you're not actually really engaging with the poem on a sort of deeper level but equally I don't want to kind of disparage the idea of poetry as therapy because it can be like extremely cathartic for people and some people do genuinely feel that it does operate to them in that way it's obviously people's minds work differently yeah definitely I think it's probably so different for everybody but I think the responses to your article have shown that many people do feel this way about maybe the genesis of poems and how that becomes so problematic when being in contact with these external value systems that don't recognize that. Well, your piece, Art Doesn't Own It, 
touches upon ideas of value in meaning and art making system, and perhaps most strikingly unfolds formally and thematically through a uniquely plural narrative perspective, the occurring segmented POV of a group of writers gathered together to discuss writing. We begin reading what we think is an essay written in first person, but by the time we reach the ending, we realize that we are part of a we and a story, an act of collective storytelling. I really love that you chose to narrativize the writer's workshop because so often there is an assumption that writers do or must operate in solitude that simply isn't reflect of the many generous writing and reading communities we are often able to lean on. Or worse, these opinions reflect an assumption that all writers are competitive and bitchy with one another. But writers' workshops are also often brought up in relation to the elitist nature of contemporary academia in which increasing social and financial barriers to education make for homogenous contexts that produce homogenous literature. And this might be a fair critique, given the current state of higher education in this country, but thankfully, MAs and MFAs are not the only place where writers meet and gather, and at least in my experience, and as your piece also suggests, creative conversations among us tend to be much more generous, intimate, within or without those contexts. A favorite moment for me, which I've seen happen many times in this kind of situation, is when a conversation around a moment in a story turns into a series of what-ifs, as writers collectively try to smooth out a knot in the narrative by collectively suggesting ways out and around it. Your essay slash story manages to reproduce that moment of a collective narrative reckoning in its connectedness and immediacy, allowing us in the same way to hold together different possibilities at the same time. And I wondered if you wanted to tell us a little bit more about how you came to structure the piece in this way, how and why you settled on this plurality, and why did it seem like the right shape to talk about concepts of value, particularly in relation to literature? Thanks so much, Livia and Lucy. It's really nice to chat with you. And thank you for finding a home for this piece and also being such a big part of shaping it. It felt like it came together in a very piecemeal way, as in I didn't intend to write it in this strange pseudo-narrative way. I started out writing a more conventional essay, but then I knew that I wanted, I wanted to write about stories. And then I essentially started telling a story. And I don't really know how to put that story within the argument. And all the techniques I found to try and fold the story in seemed just fake. And everything just felt like it was collapsing inwards. And the only structure I found that could hold it was to just make everything into speech, everything into dialogue. And yeah, I think actually I did start with a few notes, a few moments because you guys approached me with this idea and I was thinking about it. And as I was reading, I had it in the back of my head and I read that Dennis Johnson short story, which has this moment where a guy, a like wealthy, obnoxious ad man burns a painting because one of his guests expresses concern over the placement of the painting above a fireplace. And so the guy, as if to prove that he owns it, starts thrusting it into the fire and then eventually does destroy it. That moment really struck me and I carried it with me and I knew I wanted to write about it, but I also didn't want to think about what makes a moment like that so effective in storytelling. It felt wrong to analyze it. I kind of wanted to sit it within a more dialogic context and to bring in all the other stuff I wanted to bring in, like to talk about Marx and to talk about property. It felt very heavy handed to just analyze the story. Like I was snuffing out the flame of what made it interesting, like the possible readings of it, the context you can bring in. So yeah, it, it evolved in a very piecemeal way. And 
I still feel like it's evolving actually, even though it is in this current form on the website, I still don't really know what's going to happen to it. It's interesting to me that in order to find your way around story, you had to surrender to the logic of the story and that ends up being a dialogic, which involves more than one person in the room to work. But it, it ended up being one of the aspects in this that I, I connected with the most. I think a lot about the kind of exercises we do, you know, within and without academia, we're trying to work out what is my story about, what's the shape of it. We try and explain it away. And so many times I find that a really frustrating process because if the story works, it doesn't need propping up the kind of schema that explain it away. And it was just, it felt like a huge privilege is I guess what, I, is I guess what I'm trying to say to, to watch this evolve into its current plural form. And I have another question about the different sort of positions that exist and how they merge, but I'll save it for later maybe. Lucy, do you want to jump back in? Emily, returning to your essay, I've got a longer question to ask, which is, you go on in the essay to examine what, in fact, saving a life might mean and suggest that perhaps poetry is a form of survival after all, which kind of links back into what we were just talking about. I quote, If having your life saved wasn't, in fact, about unalloyed happiness, a luscious infusion of relief, I started to think then maybe writing poetry had saved my life after all. Why else would I devote myself to something whose value I couldn't explain? which was rarely lucrative, required continual self-examination, was likely to wound, an occupation better described as a preoccupation, unless it had some vital sustaining role in my existence. If you can't live without something, does it not follow that that thing has saved you from dying? All the times I wasn't sure I was alive, and then poetry stabbed me in the heart and brought me back from the dead. At the hour of my death I did not die, but was born again in this life. For me, this closing paragraph of the essay that takes this unexpected turn towards saying that perhaps poetry in this way had actually saved your life after all leads on to the mystery of poems and the mysteries that they touch upon. The sometimes blurred thresholds between death and life and if thinking about poetry as a form of survival, the relation of the concept of surviving to existing in time as well as, of course, your brilliant most recent poetry book, Unexhausted Time, do you think there's a relation to keeping or creating time in poems or poems having a kind of alternative temporality and survival and or any more thoughts about time in relation to the essay? I'm taken by the quote, at the hour of my death, I did not die. Yeah, so thank you. That's a good but difficult question. I do think the poems at their best can have a sort of alternative temporality one of the things I love most about poetry or any writing is the way it exists long past its creation. So the fact that you can read a poem that was written like a fragment by Sappho. I don't even know how many centuries ago. And that amazing quote that does the rounds on the internet. I can't remember how it goes now, but may you sleep on the breast of your delicate friend. And that still is, it's like that seed that is talked about in Will's piece the kind of ancient seeds that are hidden and that are still germinating today, that is obviously, that's like the essence of survival. So the idea that a poem can survive in that way long after the death of the person that wrote it is, yeah, amazing and life-giving and inspiring and stuff. 
I'm getting carried away and I've forgotten what your question was. <laughs> getting carried away thinking about how Sappho is still alive. <laughs> it's, it's that really is that I wonder if there's something between, we talk about, you say in the piece survivors and we think of surviving and that's like existing in time, right? Because an event isn't existing within an event. So I'm just wondering within that, if poetry is actually a form of survival, if that has something to do with its ability to entrap time. And I was also thinking about with unexhausted time, there was a sense that it was a book about living. Yeah, it was funny. When I finished the manuscript of that book and I was proofing it, I noticed that the word life appears numerous times. I can't remember I did a search and worked out how many times it appears, which was a lot. And it was actually quite nice to see that, especially because my last book was all about death. And the kind of seed for that book was this quote by Anne Carson, where she talks about unexhausted time, where I take the title from. The, the quote comes from a book of hers that's about a philosopher called Simonides and a classical philosopher and the poet Paul Solan. So she's talking about similarly time, fragments of time that are captured from centuries ago. And how you can't hold on to time, but you may be able to catch this tiny little bit, which you could interpret in whatever way you want to. But I suppose I was thinking of it as saying memory is a bit too simplistic, but the way that memories can become incarnated by going into a poem. And maybe a bit like what Will talks about in his piece, where the story evolves over time and different narrators bring in new bits of material to develop the story. So those are all these fragments of unexhausted time belonging to different people start merging together. And we don't really know even what time is. Nobody understands time, even physicists. It's mind boggling. I mean, I'm terrible at science, but from like my limited grasp of it is like how we see past, present and future as a linear progression. There's no actual elemental equation that explains how that is the case, whereas there is for things like, I don't know, gravity or whatever. If any scientist listens to this, they'll just be like, oh my God. <laughs> so, you know, it's perfectly possible that time functions in a way that is completely beyond our understanding, that the past is still here, but we just can't see it. I love it. And I think also this actually has relevance to Will's work with his yes. brother poem in the kind of alternative specular multiverse well it was yeah ringing loads of bells for me so one of the sources for my piece is this walter benjamin essay the storyteller and he talks a lot about time in that and the relationship between stories and novels so he's broadly in this piece anti-novels and prose stories and the way he talks about stories i think is quite similar to the way poems operate and he associates them with with labor that people would while they were working would tell stories that it required time to assimilate and then it had to be retold and you can't really retell a novel or if you do retell a novel it becomes a story something the kind of nugget of it and yeah there are some really amazing bits he talks about how if sleep is the apogee of physical relaxation boredom is the apogee of mental relaxation and boredom is the dream bird that hatches the egg of experience so there's this idea that boredom makes stories makes poems but boredom is also outside of time so he quotes Paul Valery, who has this amazing line, time is past in which time did not matter. 
modern man no longer works at what cannot be abbreviated, which I thought was also really relevant to the whole project of mm -hmm. too, too hard. Time has passed in which time did not matter. The kind of pre-capitalist labor conditions facilitated a different kind of art making or relationship to art, to stories, to poetry. Whereas, yeah, something about linking in a different way to social media and how you were talking about it, Emily, like seeing po people post about it. This idea of that it, writing has to give you something, reading has to give you something, that that feels like it speaks to that Valerie thing about everything has to be abbreviated, everything has to be used, has to fit within a brutal logic of work. But poetry and stories still have this pre-capitalist logic of being slightly outside of time. Maybe this is a good time for me to jump in because I have a question for starters because as somebody who writes novels, maybe because I come from a different tradition where plot is forced by the wayside when one engages voice in Italian literature. And I've never really understood this kind of plotting parameters of fiction that I have to remind myself is expected in the Anglophone world. But So it's really refreshing to hear thinking around narrative that remembers that the novel is actually really young form, but narrative like pre-exists that. And so perhaps we can think about it in massively broader terms. And so I had a question really about choosing to, where you don't firmly assign any position to any of the writers in the room, and that's refreshing because they are building a narrative together. But you do give some words to the poet specifically, and I just wanted to ask you a little bit about that. Throughout your essay and through the dialogue, your writers measure up different art forms against various notions of value with different evaluation systems. Visual art, storytelling, poetry, vis-a-vis -vis financial, emotional, and anecdotal conceptualizations of value. Each time the writer's conversation yields slightly different returns as the narrative of their meeting and their mutual entanglement continues to move forward. By the time we reach the end of the piece, we land on three kind of final statements which you attribute in turn to the eye of the piece. Another writer, which I take it to be maybe one, more concerned with the Dennis Johnson story and maybe the financial privatize or privatizable, if that's the word, value that can be assigned to visual art. And then there's a poet. And I'm, I just want to quote a little bit from your essay from that final part. Remember what you said about how a story is different from a work of art because it can be owned? Did you say that? I looked at the writer next to me who looked at the writer next to her. Stories can be packaged and sold, but they can't in their simplest form be owned. They don't exist in the same tangible or fungible way as material art. And story used in this sense suggests a category that could include art as well. Each story, said the poet, has a seed which is separate from and goes beyond form. There's the story about your dad, about Maeve, about Miller's painting. And the story changes every time it's shared. And no matter how many details you alter, it stays the same. It leaves the same taste. Language is liquid. It can be owned. It's a parody of capital. And I guess I wondered if you could say a little bit more about each of these positions. I mean, I do the fact that they merge into dialogue at the end, so perhaps they don't need to be torn apart again. But I like how they come together in the troubling their assumptions of art forms or genres as a, on the whole. Is visual art fundamentally different from narrative? Can a reconceptualization of art as narrative actually help art to escape that kind of objectification, the privatization, or its assigned value? But above all, what's the point getting at that language is a parody of capital? Yeah, that aspect of the piece I really like because it was your suggestion that I call one of the writers the poet, which I think was a really inspired touch. Particularly because as I was going through 
the essay again and thinking about this storyteller figure, the figure he doesn't talk about is the poet. He doesn't talk about poetry. He triangulates the story between the novel and information or news. And the novel is reduced to the book form. I'd say the novel could also exist in the same way a lot of visual art does in that it can be, I think, for in Benjamin's categories in that it, it can be reduced to a commodity. And then information like news is something which its value is determined by how quickly you can get it and by how near you are to the events described. And the story is this thing which is between those two. A story can't be reduced in that way. I was thinking of the verbs you would use with a novel and with news, and maybe even with art. I'm not sure about that. Is in it, that you read a novel and you could also read news, receive news, receive information. But actually with a poem, you obviously you can read a poem, but you can encounter a poem in so many different ways. You can hear a poem, listen to a poem. You can just experience a poem. Maybe that sounds cheesy, but that experiential aspect of it, I think makes it a very distinct art form. And that's why it felt nice and important that the poet is separated in that piece from the other writers, that the poet has a particular voice. I feel like one of the very few writers that articulates how I feel about storytelling, true prose, is possibly Lydia Davis when she talks about the fact that she never called herself a poet because she's more interested in narrative. And that's what I always, I was, yes, <laughs> when your piece came in, because I felt like you spoke to a functional narrative that is to do with expressing more collective psychologies, perhaps that we give it credit for. And so I love that you rescued narrative. And I would agree there is a market value that can be assigned to novels. And but that's maybe found as a really wrong assumption, really wrong for me, which is like the mimetic function of narrative, right? Narrative doesn't necessarily reproduce reality. And I think that we don't expect a poem, or maybe we do, and maybe this is a point we want to explore in conversation. Maybe increasingly people expect a poem to sort of express a person, an identity, a theme. I think with novels being commodities, increasingly they are zeitgeisty. They express a particular moment in time. They express a particular sort of context and they reproduce it through mimesis, which is actually a really basic way to think about narrative. I think narrative is much closer <laughs> to poetry or has whatever. I'm not interested in which umbrella encloses the other, but in the openness of both forms and the interaction, which I find in your piece, I am. I wonder, is that, yeah, I mean, this is a question that I feel we, Lucy and I talk about a lot, this kind of reductionism, this pinning down the form. So I don't know if Lucy wanted to come in on this at all. Yeah, I think you've articulated it really well. One of the things is I actually love concept poetry books. People complain about, I, I like, love it. But I think it's because it gives you the space to move around in that book. The space to explore something complex, which is different from the kind of simplification we're talking about, where you can say something's about something, perhaps. It's a good time to. I'm holding back on an amendment a little bit because I know you would like yeah. to read a part okay. of it. I actually didn't know that Lydia Davis had said that because when I read her I, as a poet, I'm not that interested in the distinction. There's in the way she uses form to me is like the way poets. But I wonder. Emily, with your own practice, how you find those distinctions? Or... Yeah, I was thinking when maybe we were talking about that 
quote and the question of forms, it's such a difficult question because, yeah, Lydia Davis has one piece that she does call a poem, which is called Head Heart. Mm. And I think she calls it a poem because it has line breaks. So that's the distinction she made. I don't know if it's really just to do with how one first encounters a writer, because Mary Ruffell, for example, writes what she calls both poetry and prose. So she publishes her prose pieces separately in terms of they're in separate books. But to me, her prose pieces, which are like short little pieces, are quite like poems. I would call them poems. And I have published some of them in the Poetry Review as poems. But whether I think they're a poem or not is meaningless in a way. Is it what the author says it is or is it what the reader says it is or does it matter? Yeah, because in my book, Unexhausted Time, there is a sequence of, I call them prose poems, like they're prose pieces in this middle section versus the rest of the book, which is in lineated poetry. But they feel like poems to me because I have the margins reduced so they don't run to the full width of the page. And if I write something that feels like it can go to the full width of the page, then to me that's prose. Whereas if I feel like the margins have to be reduced, even though they're justified on both sides, that's a prose poem. Is a prose poem with strong narrative thread? Does the space and the page matter more than the fact that it's a narrative poem? I guess to broaden the question, another thing at the back of my mind that I think maybe people who write primarily poetry suffer a little less is genre. My big sort of like, oh my God, moment was realizing that Novelists very rarely write crime, very rarely write romance, very rarely write historical fiction. They write a novel that they think is good, then they sell it and it gets marketed a certain way. And there are shapes to poetry, the pamphlet, the collection, or like a themed grouping <laughs> of poems. But they're a bit losers. Will we give these things a name necessarily if we didn't think about how they're going to be published? or how they're going to be reaching a reader. So I wonder, is the question of readership by the back of our minds? When we're thinking, okay, this is a prose book, this is a poetry book, it's going to reach different readers. I think that's probably part of it, but I think the kind of question of naming things is as ancient as storytelling, and that in some ways people want to put things in categories because it's comforting and they know what they're dealing with. But at the same time, that can be really limiting. I feel that way about diagnoses. I guess we live in an age where diagnosis is a thing, like what mental health condition you've got or whatever. And people can find that really comforting to say, I'm this, and that explains X, Y, and Z. But at the same time, all of these diagnoses don't necessarily explain everything. I suppose it goes back to what I say in the essay about how the external value system appreciates poetry. It doesn't you can say a poem is a prize-winning poem and it's really brilliant and blah, 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 but it doesn't actually really tell you anything about the poem. Names are, are unavoidable, but also they don't tell us very much. I often think, to come back to what you were talking about at the beginning, the whole idea of writing as therapy, I've always thought that their writing isn't therapy in the way therapy is commonly thought of as like something which helps but writing to me is quite similar to talking therapy or analysis in that it holds open a space and often brings you 
closer to a wound. And that can be very unsettling and destabilizing. And my experience of writing has always been like that, but never in this kind of writing as therapy. I mean, like you were saying in your piece, I don't feel good when I write that image, that phrase from Lucy Brock Broido that it adds further insult. Yeah, is really rings true because there's the shame. It's talking about a therapy, talking about it, bring vocalizing it, sharing it outside of the therapy space. That to me does that does ring true. Part of this makes me wonder if, like, the idea of a kind of mindfulness thing of having inner peace and I don't know, just floating along, enjoying life. This is deeply cynical. Maybe we've accepted this as a kind of standard that we think people really live like this. Maybe. We are victims in some way of this marketized idea of well-being and happiness. And actually, everybody mm-hmm. feels like we're saying. Well, yeah, which kind of comes like this idea of life-saving. Like the point of therapy isn't wellness, really. It's not like being cured. It's staying alive. Just live with yourself to some extent. Yeah, mindfulness as it's often packaged is not the like real mindfulness isn't about reaching permanent inner peace. I guess that's maybe the distant hope, but it's more about just being with whatever's going on, however painful it is. I guess it's human nature. You still are hoping that one day everything's going to be amazing. I'm thinking about there's a section in Antony Laxagora's piece where he touches upon the fact that encouragement comes from the market because of how poetry sometimes circulates now with new media that there is this expectation that a poem is a tonic they'll put you in a different mood there's something that encourages that that kind of flattened notion of poetry I don't think it comes from poets necessarily and I mean this seems to be the crux of the issue again like how much agency do we actually have on the circulation of our work whether we're prose writers or poetry writers like so many decisions are made on that packaging that means we want to protect the complexity but everything else tries to funnel that complexity in very kind of measurable ways, which seems unnerving. Is unnerving, in fact. Well, it's like the kind of two sides of the idea that language isn't owned, that it can also be taken and used in contexts where it wasn't intended. But in a way, you have to have that if you're going to also have the bit where the story can just unfold in whatever direction. I think if you look at the way poetry is used in adverts, that does reflect how most people really see poetry, which is as a kind of, yeah, cultural cachet signifier, mood music of sensitiveness and thinking hardness. Like when O2 use it in Advil or McDonald's do have some commission, but it's just, it doesn't mean anything. It just, yeah, it's like a tone. That's why the poet voice is so significant. Just shifts. It's just like. I'm being sensitive, which actually makes me think I had a question for Emily and actually maybe everyone could just extend. Do you think about what your relationship to your work would be like if you hadn't published or shared it? Because that is the way of getting out of the intersections of work, time and value, the trap of that. Yeah, that's the really fascinating question because, well, I think that there's different levels to it because obviously there's, you could not share your work at all, or you could share it as in publish it, but refuse to ever engage with publicity of any kind, which is like what say Salima Hill does now. And I think, I remember you mentioning this before, I think Wong Mei is similar, doesn't engage 
but there's very, as far as I can tell, there's very few poets who go to those lengths. When it comes to not publishing at all, like for me personally, it was never an option. Even when I was very little, <laughs> I was already like thinking ahead to publishing my work. Like I would type all my poems on a typewriter because my dad had typewriters up until even long after computers came along. And I really wanted to see what they would look like in print, like in quotes. But it, I didn't obviously interrogate why I wanted that. And I still don't really know. But now, yeah, I don't think I would feel that satisfied if I just didn't publish anything. And then you could say, what are you complaining about then? When you're putting the work out there, then people are going to engage with it and they want, you're going to have to engage with the cultural stuff around it. And that's fair enough. But it's this weird double bind that writers find themselves in. Some writers, of course, do really love doing readings and publicity. And, and then I'm talking about all this on a podcast. I'm enjoying doing this. Yeah, it's very complicated. Yes, but again, what does that need to be? I don't know. What does the need for cookie cutter publicity come from? Do you know what I mean? Like sometimes I've been in situations where I've interviewed writers and I've had a really lovely time and I've been in situations where clearly that person doesn't necessarily want to be there. But they feel a pressure. As they should be. I don't know that it increases sales. Do you know what I mean? Does it work or are we like... I think we really need to, we need to have some sort of symposium with publicists and find out to what degree this stuff, because I think a lot of writers really think that it matters hugely. They think they have to be tweeting about their work constantly. They have to agree to every single event they're asked to do. Otherwise they won't be asked to do it again, that they can't turn down a single opportunity. And I personally don't think it does make that, it makes some difference, I'm sure, but I think certain things make big differences that you wouldn't necessarily know would and other things. Like, I don't think social media makes much of a difference. I've just got two things floating around, which is one, I think there is a problem with perhaps smaller presses where you are more dependent on driving that marketing traffic. But like, it can also be fruitless. And I think too much emphasis is placed on that. And I think probably everybody has thought that should not be the work, the poet's work, to market themselves. And it also collapses that distance between the writer and the poem. And it's saying, I am the I in this poem, perhaps. The other thing I was thinking of was that I think there's something in wanting to publish poems, perhaps, where it's like you want to be seen. And I mean by seen in the psychoanalytic sense of want to be understood. And maybe it might not be that there's a specific thing to be understood but that's where poems are so good and that they do contain that kind of uncertainty and ambivalence where there's a need for something to be recognized perhaps whatever it is even if it's just a kind of feeling and I think that's a very very deep kind of human instinct right my son when he's young he'll come to me and anything he does like a drawing he'll write something he'll come to me and he'll want to show it to me to have a look at straight away and I'm like wow this is great genuinely this is and I think that's such a deep instinctive thing and who knows why we do it but it's clearly important yeah it's people who did cave paintings back in the day obviously all art is a form of communication ultimately yeah but I suppose the ambivalence comes with 
we are very ambivalent about communication. You want to say something, but you're afraid to. And the thing about poetry is it's like saying something you're afraid to say in another way. And that's why I think poetry that comes from trauma can be very difficult to put out there because you're desperate to say the thing that you're saying in the poem, but you don't want to say it in your body. So then you've got the poem and you have to then appear on a stage and present it. And I think that's where the kind of push and pull thing of wanting to hide, but wanting to be seen comes. Isn't an amazing line about how wanting to be, wanting to be both seen and hidden? And... Yeah, I was going to say it, but I think yeah. I said it on every podcast I've ever been on. So I was like, I'm not going to mention it again. <laughs> it says something like, an artist is someone who is caught between the desire to hide and the desire to be seen. Oh, yeah. Actually, no, I was thinking of another Winnicott line. It's a joy to be hidden, but a disaster not to be found. So implicit in the desire to hide is still this need to be seen, to be found. And I think, yeah, I feel that also speaks to what a lot of writers, creative people do, which is it's a way of hiding as well to write. Cause it's mm. what, turning away from the world, you're spending a lot of time by yourself feeling quite shit. But then I was also thinking the desire to be seen and your son, Lucy, sharing his work with you. That's kind of different from sharing work with strangers. Like wanting to share work with friends and loved ones is one thing, but wanting to just disseminate it to people you will never meet is weird and very unusual behavior, I think. That is true. <laughs> and I hadn't thought of that before. I was just wondering, you both brought in texts possibly relevant to either your essays or the wider themes of the magazine by other writers. And we were wondering what they were, maybe starting with Emily. Yeah, should I just read them both? Yeah, okay. So I brought in, I like that because it makes it feel like we we're in school having a show and tell, which is relevant to one of these poems. I brought in two pieces. One is by Nuar Al-Sadir from her book, Fourth Person Singular, and it's called Sketch 37. And the other one is called To School, and it's by Stevie Smith. So I'll just read them both. Sketch 37. On the way home from a walk, my dog likes to return to spots he has pissed on to smell and sometimes lick his markings. Such joy goes into this sniffing, while Slavoj Žižek describes the revulsion most of us feel in perceiving our interiors erupt into the external world through the example of saliva, which we constantly produce and swallow inside our bodies. Imagine, he proposes, a scenario in which someone tells you to spit into a glass, then drink it. The thought is repulsive. Your insides are to remain hidden, even from yourself. The lyric is that saliva in a glass, but what does it incarnate? And the poem has this little indented note in it which says, Kuntaton, most dog-like, most shameless. And then this is the Stevie Smith poem, To School. Let all the little poets be gathered together in classes and let prizes be given to them by the prize asses and let them be sure to call all the little poets young 
and worse follow what's bad begun. But do not expect the muse to attend this school. Why, look already how far off she has flown. She is no fool. So the new Alcidir piece is something I've, yeah, that really stayed with me when I first read it about five years ago when that book came out. The sort of visceral description of the saliva in a glass. It goes back to what we were talking about just earlier of artists wanting to remain hidden. And then the minute you put yourself out there, you're not hidden. And not only are you not hidden, you're revealing something that you feel is your insides, which shouldn't be on show at all. And that sort of self-disgust really resonated with me as an experience of having written personal work. And the C.V. Smith poem I just love because it's so shady. And I just, I've often thought of the poetry world as being a bit like being in a school. There's all these kind of weird hierarchies and factions. And when you're at the earlier stage in your career, you're looking up towards the kind of big kids at the top of the school, like maybe Simon Armitage is the head boy and all the things that kind of go on, these kind of spats that seem so important outside that world are obviously like very minor. But yeah, I just kind of like the way the poem sort of implies that the actual source of poetry has nothing to do with this sort of external business of prizes and being considered a young poet or whatever. Yeah, do not expect the muse to attend this school. And I love that saliva in that glass. There's something very viscous about it and the thing of coughing something up, but also oh, God. Yeah. quite mysterious. Saliva is quite mysterious, isn't it? The, that as a kind of substance, it's glutinous thing. It does have a kind of mystery to it. But talking about these prizes, Emily, because that was in your essay quite substantially but I did also what I thought this is a great opportunity to maybe bring in what Will might think about prizes because both of you are poets who've won top prizes as it were yeah I don't know Will if you have anything to say on this you'd like to say on this subject yeah what Emily wrote about prizes resonated with me a lot I guess the whole prize thing just sharpened the feeling I had immediately after publishing which was that I'd made a terrible mistake and also that I'd lost something that I could never get back once I published and I was like what have I done and in a way prizes should make you feel better about that but if anything they can just highlight it yeah I felt bad particularly because I thought the book was bad I came to really dislike my book my work the person that I was who'd written it and I feel a bit better about it now, but that process, I think, was maybe slowed down by the prize thing. I just felt like it wasn't really about the work. But then I also, the thing like the Thomas Bernhard stuff that you quote, Emily, it, it does, you do feel like a, what is it, a nest beschmutzer? Yeah. Like your silence is being bored. But then maybe there is also a moral imperative to bite the hand that feeds you as well and that is a through line with a lot of the pieces and with this project that how can you change the conditions of work if you don't yeah if you don't shit in your workplace if you're not ungrateful though it's a really it feels like quite an ugly emotion to put out there because there obviously were good aspects as well 
the part of me that wanted the rope because I wanted affirmation and praise. That part was very much seen by that, but it brought all these other things to the surface, which kind of overpowered that ultimately. Thanks so much for sharing these experiences. I think it's really important. And I think either with winning big prizes or not winning them, you kind of can't talk about these things without a feeling of, like you say, it's either ingratitude or sour grapes. But I don't think that they make anybody feel good. And there is this question of, because poetry is so dependent on prizes, can there be another way? Are we doomed to suffer with prizes? And that may be the case. Or is there another way of making them different or approaching prize culture where both people who receive these awards but also people who don't have come out of it feeling better? Yeah, it seems as if all the sort of what you might want to call ugly feelings that can arise around writing coalesce around prize culture. There's the kind of desperation for affirmation and the bitter jealousy. And those are the things that sort of happen there. So that winning a prize, you're negotiating with this sense of people being potentially jealous of you. And maybe those feelings of wanting affirmation has been satisfied, but then of course you're never satisfied because getting what you want isn't really the thing. And then it turns out what you wanted was something else. And then not winning the prize is painful in all the obvious ways. I suspect there are people who win prizes and feel uncomplicatedly happy, but I don't know. It's, yeah, it's a very difficult area and it must be able to change because how it is now is new. Like when my first book came out, prize culture was not as rabid as it is now. There were fewer prizes and much less expectation on the part of a new writer that prizes were something that they were going to be involved in. Whereas I think now people could go into it feeling already really twisted up about it. Oh God, am I going to be shortlisted? Oh, I'm not going to be shortlisted. I'm going to feel terrible about it. Or, And it just adds a whole layer of stuff onto something that's already quite difficult. But then at the same time, of course, it does seem a sort of an ungrateful thing or to be complaining about the potential of winning a lot of money and praise or the opportunity to even have that as a thing. It seems what a weird thing to complain about and how self-indulgent. I think it's a massive relief. You know, with prizes, you think, oh, at least the person winning it is going to enjoy this moment. So... You can feel happy for them. Will, when your book won the forward, I was really happy that book had been recognised. But if it's making you feel awful, then that one good aspect of prizes isn't actually there. This has come up with a Turner Prize, hasn't it, for a couple of years, everybody who was shortlisted one. But that's just marginally expanding the recipients, really, maybe, isn't it? I really don't know. I don't know if you have any ideas of some kind of alternative utopia of prize giving. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you could have a utopia of prize giving. <laughs> like a universal basic, basic income, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking. Like, like, yeah. <laughs> you could frame universal basic income as a prize. But 
yeah, I don't know how to make them, how to make them. I, I know that for booksellers, they're pretty important. They make a difference for sales, but I think that's also a failure of imagination in how poetry is sold, marketed, or how poetry gets to people. I'd be interested to know statistically how much of a difference they do make. I'm sure, of course, they do in some instances make a big difference, but I don't think probably it's like a blanket definite thing. Certainly being shortlisted doesn't necessarily make a huge difference, whereas being the actual winner probably does. I do remember being told about an older poet who in the noughties won all prizes one year, like literally every single prize. It was ridiculous. And apparently his book sold almost no copies. It sold like... Yeah, I think I saw that as well. Really small amount. I don't know. Maybe it was just a period when nobody liked poems. Being somebody who watches poets win prizes, what it does is that it often puts you on the map as a person. And that is not necessarily looping back now, but that is not necessarily something that people want in relation to poetry. There's reduction of shackling to their physical person or face <laughs> because it closes that. I'm thinking about Will's essay, right? And how plural it is and how it is necessary for it to be a plural space because these are complex concepts. And so we need different speakers in the room to unpick them. And the problem, I would imagine if you're thrust on a stage as somebody that is there to present their book, then that book becomes associated with you and it cuts out maybe all the plurality one goes looking for, I think, particularly in poetry. No, that, and that doesn't seem like a good thing. If you are yourself made into an asset. Yeah. One of the ways Levinas talks about shame is about the self being riveted. Like you can't move, you're riveted to yourself. And in a way, yeah, that's what prizes do. Maybe that's why it, it can bring up a lot of shame. Unless you have written something or your work is a project which you're trying to reach as many people with. And there are cases I know where people have really used prizes to help their, a particular cause, like John Berger winning a booker and giving the money to the Black Panthers. That's not really like a reproducible thing. It's not like everyone should do that. That would be weird, I think. There's obviously the kind of benefit of people winning prizes who are coming from historically marginalized groups that are then allowing those groups to have more visibility. And of course, that's a, a very positive thing, but I could imagine that it must also be an ambivalent thing to suddenly find yourself in this kind of role as spokesperson or a shepherd leading a flock into the limelight or something, I don't know. And of course... When a book is raised up like that and the author is, because of the way the media works, it, like you're saying, they'd be reduced to its sort of their principles. Here's this person who's from this background and their story is about their abandonment as a child or whatever succinct story they can make up that has enough sort of pathos and redemption in it to be marketable. It's slightly adjacent, but there's also something about it's quite damning to your way of writing as well because my experience of reading poets books is that I've preferred often their non-prize winning books to their other books but if you win a prize for your book right then it's almost saying that's good style you should stay writing like that and I think many poets do think that 
And actually that can be terrible for their writing because it may be that actually there are other books and this, uh, there's also the sense of having to, each new book you have to reinvent yourself, but you can end up doing the same thing to replicate the prize winning. I think there's a lot of this in art. Artists will be expected by galleries to make a certain kind of work. And they become known for that. And that's how their kind of career progresses, as it were. And I think there might be a kind of parallel at times like that in poetry. But of course, the challenge is every book is a kind of completely new thing where it's like you've never written before. But I would say that going back to discussions about time, I think like prizes are very confined to within time and people have short memories when it comes to prizes. I think that's a consolation to anybody who's worried about having not won or feeling uncomfortable about having won something that the next year, a lot of people probably won't remember who won what prize the year before. And certainly it doesn't stay attached to your work for very long. If you think about your favorite poets of the past, it's, I don't go, oh, Frank O'Hara, he won the XYZ prize for New York poets or something. It's just not a thing. And maybe you'd remember who won the Nobel Prize or something. John Ashbery, The Self-Portrait in a Convex Mirror, was one of those books which won all the prizes. And when I read it as a teenager, I was like, oh, wow, this book must be really good. And I did love it. <laughs> then, like Lucy was saying, I, I, then I read his other books. And to be fair, I think it is one of his best books. <laughs> but it is, but there are so many, yeah, there are so many others. I wonder if maybe this is a good time to roll back to this notion we keep coming back to of, I suppose, what, what Will with Benjamin calls the, the seed. You're talking about the seed of a narrative, but what I really like is this idea that you find this forgotten lost seed, you water it and something comes out and you don't know what a plant is going to be, maybe a really ugly plant or maybe a beautiful sort of fancy mm. plant, but you water it and have faith in the fact that it will explain itself. I'm trying really hard not to say it will blossom. I wonder if you wanted to read the Benjamin section to us, so you've got a little bit in your essay. Yeah, I'll read this bit of this essay by Walter Benjamin called The Storyteller. The first storyteller of the Greeks was Herodotus. In the 14th century of the third book of his histories, there is a story from which much can be learned. It deals with Semenitus. When the Egyptian king Semenitus had been beaten and captured by the Persian king Cambyses, Cambyses was bent on humbling his prisoner. He gave orders to place Semenitus on the road along which the Persian triumphal procession was to pass, and he further arranged that the prisoner should see his daughter pass by as a maid going to the well with her pitcher. While all the Egyptians were lamenting and bewailing this spectacle, Semenitus stood alone, mute and motionless, his eyes fixed on the ground. And when presently he saw his son, who was being taken along the procession, executed, he likewise remained unmoved. But when afterwards he recognized one of his servants, an old, impoverished man, in the ranks of the prisoners, he beat his fists against his head and gave all the signs of deepest mourning. From this story, it may be seen what the nature of true storytelling is. The value of information does not survive the moment in which it was new. It lives only at that moment. It has to surrender to it completely and explain itself to it without losing any time. A story is different. It does not expend itself. It preserves and concentrates its strength and is capable of releasing it even after a long time. Thus, Montaigne referred to this Egyptian king and asked himself why he mourned only when he caught sight of his servant. Montaigne answers, since he was already overfull of grief, 
it took only the smallest increase for it to burst through its dams, thus Montaigne. But one could also say, the king is not moved by the fate of those of royal blood, for it is his own fate, or we are moved by much on the stage that does not move us in real life. To the king, this servant is only an actor. Or, great grief is pent up and breaks forth only with relaxation. Seeing this servant was the relaxation. Herodotus offers no explanations. His report is the driest. That is why this story from ancient Egypt is still capable after thousands of years of arousing astonishment and thoughtfulness. It resembles the seeds of grain which have lain for centuries in the chambers of the pyramids shut up airtight and have retained their germinative power to this day. Sorry, that was quite long. I really felt like I was giving a Bible reading. <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, right. Really lovely to have a context to hear the story in full. This central idea of dryness as something that makes space, as opposed to being dry as in boring, I really enjoyed in your essay. And maybe with that in mind, this essay brings us when they're thinking about the themes we've been circling all along and how we might use these conversations to think about change within our practice, within the industry more broadly. Well, in relation to your essay, a lovely sort of mirroring effect that occurs when you look at the Benjamin essay is that this is a multiple essay, which has led to another multiple essay. So there's this generative process. And so we had a final question, which was, which is to do with working conditions, but maybe in this context, we can think about it more broadly to do with how there's knowledge exchanges happen within communities and, and how they can broaden conversations, bring together people. But what are some things that you think we could actively do as writers, as poets, to improve our working conditions? And what would you change? What suggestions do we have constructively so that the collective nature of engaging with the text may remain perhaps tethered to the human, the animal, the communication exchange that we've been bringing ourselves back to all along. So I think the suggestion in Yara's essay is great of the guild. I've often talked about that with other writers. I know that the Society of Authors exists and you can get lawyers to look over contracts and they provide a lot of resources on payment. But I think a guild that was more overtly political that could organize together and have yearly or whatever meetings where people would come together and discuss working conditions, share information about editors and magazines and events and talk about organizing those things themselves, just to steer the power away from its more traditional sources and back towards writers. The other thought I had when I was thinking about working conditions as writers was actually most writers work as in they do other jobs and thinking about how writing happens in workplaces. So one book which has been really important to me is Mark Novak's Social Poetics. And he set up this thing called the Worker Writers School in the US where he does workshops with trade unions and other groups of working people. And I think that kind of thing is quite important. A kind of grassroots campaign of getting writing into different communities and getting people writing. I think that would do a lot to change the writing culture rather than just thinking how we can leverage a pretty broken system to make it slightly better or change certain things. I think thinking about how the writing community itself is who's in it, 
how it's composed, how it's organized, and how mm. it could change. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad that you bring this in because I think we've been talking about not wanting to feel riveted to one's own person or physicality. That doesn't mean that having physical people in the room is a bad thing. It's just the decoupling. <laughs> The fact that something must lead back to a physical person and their own experiences, but there's something really, I don't know, I find that for a long time I really protected my poems because I wanted them to stay linked to my physical presence because I didn't want them to be something that could be on a page and circulated in that way away from me. But it was important to be with people and it is important to be with people who are learning. I think you've got to start somewhere from the roots up. And getting more people in the room and getting more people writing and making sure that everybody knows that there's this, it's there for them. Yeah. So for everyone, really. And yeah. same question to you, Emily. What do you think we could do to improve our working conditions as writers? Or what would you change? I found this a really hard question to answer, to be honest. I haven't really come up with anything. I don't know if I've got this wrong, but I have the idea that in Ireland, certain writers get a sort of basic income like a sort of stipend which seems incredible well, but maybe we should all get that but then I thought I don't know what does that lead to whenever I've had a grant to do to focus entirely on writing and do nothing else I found it quite paralyzing I think there's some kind of idea that poetry should be professionalized and poets should be able to treat being a poet as a proper job which I don't think I agree with. I feel like poetry is quite different to other forms of writing in that I don't really think you should be spending eight hours a day, five days a week writing poems. And if you did, you're probably not very well. Obviously, I think that if we could find a way that poetry and its associated kind of work was properly remunerated, that would be amazing. But of course, that's a bit of a pie in the sky idea. I'm quite a sort of pessimist, I suppose. What Will was saying about community and the stuff that Yara discusses in her essay, I was going to mention as well. I think that's all great. And maybe sort of like opportunities like this is really brilliant. There's lots of things that I think as writers, we might discuss among ourselves in our individual social groups or like one-on-one, -on -one, but that don't get brought out into a wider platform. And that these types of conversations exist in gossip, WhatsApp threads and things like that, but they're not brought out. And I think that would be good. A lot of writers tend to meet each other only, I guess, at events or at occasions where you're talking about something that you're listening to rather than sitting down and discussing something more broadly. More opportunities for that to happen would be good, I think. Yeah, for sure. I saw someone tweet yesterday saying, in response to one of our articles, people find it hard to let it sink in that writers also work. And that is, I can see why, and I can see why in the world we live in, but we also do work. And I think that if that is made more explicit, and if that assumption is counted a little bit, it's all the best for writers, but also all the best for people more broadly, because it signals the fact that writing is something that belongs to everybody. I think also, Emily, what you say about the thing of writing poems for eight hours a day is really true. You know, you can't. And there is a sense where that maybe writing poems also comes out of adversity, out of certain structures and constraints, and that affects mediums. And I'm not trying to say that those things like universal basic income or decent housing, I think those are all things that would very much help doing that. 
but it is complicated. I think what Will says about the guilds and Yara's unions, this idea of the social poetics is really nice. And I'm really glad this is a space and also the sense of having a collective conversation among writers that is is maybe very different from the way that, like you say, social media works or even WhatsApp or whatever, where it feels like there is much more of a meaningful exchange going on. One of the reasons we started this is, ironically, considering that everybody can post what they think apparently all the time on social media, that actually there's no space for this kind of discourse. And to honour, like we're saying, like now about this thing of you can't write all day. Do we want to publish? Do we not? To honour those complexities, it's not one thing or the other. It's really important to have an opportunity to share different responses to things and find out what other people think. In the essay that I wrote when I was writing about my experience of winning a prize, I was thinking, oh, people might read this and just be like, that's mad. It's great to win a prize. It's a relief for me to see that there are people with similar views because they are things that people find difficult to talk about. And all of the things that are discussed in these pieces in this issue are similar, I think. So room for an expansive dialogue is great. I'm really glad. And I think both of your pieces do this in different ways. With Will's piece, I feel like it's very much a piece of creative work in itself where we're going into that special associative kind of thinking that we love about poetry so much and the way it moves is circling around this question in that on that kind of different angle and Emily your piece is so moving resonated like you say about this prize culture thank you so much to both of you for coming on the podcast and writing for us and doing the uh, work time value thing with too little too hard as well thank you both thank you thank you thanks for listening to the too little too hard podcast we hope you've enjoyed our discussion today. We are grateful to our funders, the Royal Society of Literature and the Department of English at the University of Exeter. Visit our website, tlth.co.uk, to read the full articles. Bye for now. <laughs>